Good afternoon. I think we'll get started. Welcome everyone in the room here and those watching remotely. Will, they need to be turned on. Um, I'd like to introduce, this is the first of our three third-year fellows who will be doing Grand Rounds presentations over the next month, um, Swarupa Yerabotala. And she is originally from Kadapa, India. She received her Bachelor of Medicine in Surgery at Kurnool Medical College where she was voted Best Graduating Student of the Year, won gold medals in Social and Preventive Medicine and Ophthalmology. She did residency at Seton Hall University School of Health and Medical Science and, was, and won an award for Best Clinical Vignette at an annual research colloquium. She did a year of fellowship in transfusion medicine here at Dartmouth before her hematology-oncology fellowship here, which she is completing in June. She, ha she is yellow belt trained and certified. <laughs> she volunteered in rural health camps and for polio immunizations and health campaigns in India, as well as cancer education programs in New Jersey. She has several peer-reviewed publications on diverse subjects, including the impact of diabetes on breast cancer outcomes and the implementation of a restrictive transfusion policy using prospective computerized order auditing and most recently on the successful use of cryocrit for monitoring response and plasma exchange in type 1 cryoglobulinemia. So I'm delighted to uh, say she will be uh, pursuing a career in hematology, and she will be talking to us today on thrombosis and cancer. She has no conflicts of interest. She reports that she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. And she attests that she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Welcome, Swarupa. Thank you, Dr. Chamberlain. And it's a, such an honor to be here. And I thank everyone to be here and for supporting me today. So let's begin our talk. So disclosures, um, I have no disclosures to reveal. And as Dr. Chamberlain mentioned, I'm not receiving any payments from anyone, and I'm not going to discuss any off-label treatments. <clears throat> so let's begin with the case. Um, she's a 64-year-old female with no significant past medical history. She's a non-smoker, normal body, body mass index, no family history of venous thromboembolism. In December of 2015, she undergoes surgery for acoustic neuroma. One week later, she presented with shortness of breath to a local hospital and was found to have pulmonary embolism. She was started on enoxaparin and bridge to warfarin. INR was well maintained in the therapeutic range between two to three. So a month later in January 2016, she presents with worsening left leg swelling. Repeat venous duplex of the left leg shows slight progression of her deep venous thrombosis. So she was switched to enoxaparin, 1.5 milligrams per kilo once a, once a daily regimen. A um, few months later, in April 2016, she presents with sudden onset of right side weakness and slurred speech. Um, MRI of the brain now reveals bilateral infarctions consistent with embolic stroke. So she's now switched to enoxaparin, 1 milligram per kilo Q12 hour regimen. Repeat venous ultrasound shows non-occlusive left coughing, deep venous thrombosis. And this was felt to be residual venous occlusion rather than a new clot. 
further workup was uh, um, initiated to evaluate for her um, thrombosis. Workup for antiphospholipid antibodies was negative. Um, Transesophageal echocardiogram revealed 5 millimeter filamentous mobile echo density attached to the aortic wall, but no PFO. So now the investigation for any underlying cancers or any other predisposing factors for her thrombosis was initiated. The tumor markers reveal elevated CA 99 to 1300, normal being less than 35. So now she undergoes CD chest abdomen and pelvis, which reveals four by two centimeter mass in the tail of the pancreas with multiple hepatic meds and lymphadenopathy. A fine needle aspiration of the liver lesion is consistent with adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. So this is one of the cases which uh, highlights the association between venous thromboembolism and cancer. Dr. Which... we're having trouble hearing you. Could oh. you move the mic, maybe? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Can you hear now? Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. So, so let's talk more about um, the association between uh, thrombosis and um, malignancies. Um, this is our outline for today's talk, talking about history of association between thrombosis and cancer, the role of cancer screening in patients with venous thromboembolism, risk factors for VTE in cancer, the risk models, VTE prophylaxis in cancer, pathogenesis of VTE in cancer, tuberculosis, thrombin generation in brain tumor patients, and ongoing studies and future perspective. Uh, we all know Dr. Armand Trusso, who first um, explained the association between thrombosis and cancer. Um, in his words, I'm struck by the frequency with which cancerous patients are affected with painful edema of the extremities. Other case in which the absence of appreciable tumor made me hesitate as to the nature of a disease of the stomach. My doubts were removed. I know the disease to be cancerous when phlegma alba dolens appeared in the limb. So, ironically, he died of gastric cancer six months later after writing to his student Peter in January 1987. He writes, I am lost. The phlebitis that has just appeared tonight leaves me no doubt as to the nature of my illness. So, and uh, this association between thrombosis and cancer was named after him as Trousseau syndrome, as we all know. Um, the Trousseau syndrome includes idiopathic venous thromboembolism in patients with occult malignancy, thrombophlebitis, uh, di uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation associated with microangiopathy, varicose endocarditis, arterial emboli. So, now that we are seeing association between thrombosis and cancer, the question is, should we screen every patient who presents with DVT, pulmonary embolism to cancer? This question was addressed in this study. Um, screening for occult cancer in unprovoked venous thromboembolism is a large multicenter, open-label, randomized uh, controlled trial in patients with first unprovoked venous thromboembolism. Um, it included patients uh, uh, they randomized to two groups, to limited screening with basic blood tests, chest x-ray screening for age-appropriate breast, cervical, and prostate cancers, versus limited screening plus CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. So their primary outcome measure was uh, confirmed cancers that were missed by the screening strategy but detected by the end of the first year follow-up period. As you can see in this chart, uh, it didn't come out right very good, but we can deal with it. So as you can see, the uh, 
patients in the limited screening, 431 were in the limited screening and 423 in the limited screening plus CAT scan. Um, uh, of these uh, limited screening, 14 patients were diagnosed with a new uh, diagnosis of occult cancer, whereas in the CAT scan group, 19 patients were diagnosed. And when you compared them, the p-value is not significant. And the number of occult cancers that were missed with each screening strategy is also not clinically significant. As you can see, ironically, the number of cancers that were missed were more with CAT scan than with the regular screening. And the mean time to cancer diagnosis was also not significant, uh, and the cancer-related mortality was also not significant. So the conclusion, this table just um, shows you different types of cancers that were diagnosed during initial screening period and during further follow-up periods. So the conclusion of this study is prevalence of occult cancer was low among patients with first unprovoked venous thromboembolism. And routine screening with CT, abdomen, and pelvis did not provide a clinically significant benefit. So the answer to our question is no, but the age-appropriate cancer screening is appropriate. If they didn't have mammogram and they're due for it, if they didn't have colonoscopy and pap smear, if they're due for it, we should be doing them anyhow. With the caveat, if the patient develops recurrent venous thromboembolism despite a therapeutic anticoagulation like our patient, then you should be looking for underlying uh, predisposing conditions, including antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, DIC, malignancies, and etc. So a little bit epidemiology on the VTE in cancer. The incidence of venous thromboembolism in, in this country is 1 to 2 per 100 uh, per thousand each year, and 20 to 30 percent of all first VTEs are cancer-associated. The incidence of VTE in cancer patients is around 4 to 20 percent. It depends on various risk factors which we'll be talking about. VTE is the second leading cause of death in cancer patients, and this is tied to infection. Um, the higher mortality among cancer patients with VTE than cancer patients without VTE. And um, as we all know, once the patient is diagnosed with thrombosis, there can be delays in the treatment because they require anticoagulation, further workup, and anticoagulation is associated with further increase in the risk of bleeding, and it increases the readmission rates and healthcare costs we are all talking about. And the incidence of venous thromboembolism in hospitalized patients, uh, the study of 40 million patients um, with 19 different types of malignancies hospitalized between uh, 1979 to 1999. It shows various types of cancers, uh, the top being the pancreas and the brain. With the, uh, the most, uh, the x-axis shows different types of malignancies, and the y-axis shows relative risk of VTE in each subgroup of the patients. And as you can see, the highest risk is with pancreatic and brain tumors. The risk factors for venous thromboembolism in cancer, patient-related factors, um, older age, African-Americans higher than the Caucasians uh, versus Asians, comorbidities, infections, renal, pulmonary, anemia, obesity, prior history of venous thromboembolism, performance status, obviously if they are bedridden, they are higher risk. Cancer-related factors, what is the site of the primary? Is it is the breast versus is it the brain? Um, the stays, uh, early cancer versus the metastatic cancer. The time since diagnosis, the first three to six months is considered to be the highest period for, uh, highest risk period for venous thromboembolism. Histology, um, adenocarcinoma has higher risk of VTE compared to the squamous cell histology. The biomarkers, 
um, anemia with hemoglobin less than 10 grams, leukocytosis, uh, what, 11,000, and platelet count greater than 350 are all risk factors. The tumor-related factors, um, sorry, the treatment-related factors, the major surgery, hospitalization, chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, anti-angiogenesis drugs, we all know bevacizumab and the newer TKIs, ponatinib, um, sunitinib, they're all associated with the increased risk of uh, thromboembolism, both, ve uh, both venous and also arterial. Erythropoietin-stimulating agents, blood transfusions, and the catheters, both medipores and the pit lines. Um, and we have uh, two risk models to predict the risk of developing VTE in the cancer patients. One is Corona model. Um, um, this uh, is, is a model based on a prospective study of ambulatory patients uh, enrolled, for, uh, enrolled in the ANC study. Their uh, endpoint was not VTE, but uh, it's a subgroup analysis that did. AY model, um, this is an ambulatory, uh, this um, model followed the patients uh, uh, in the Vienna CAT study, and their primary outcome was VTE. And this included two other risk factors besides the Corona's model, the D-dimer and the soluble P-selecting. And this is Corona's predictive model for chemotherapy-associated venous thromboembolism. They included the site of the cancer, very high risk, high risk, and the low risk, pre-chemo platelet count, pre-chemo hemoglobin level, and pre-chemo white blood cell count, and body mass index. As you can see, these are the odds ratio for each of these risk factors, and the risk score um, for all these various factors. <laughs> and they updated the study in JCO 2009, adding brain, lung, renal, myeloma, and lymphoma in the high-risk category. So the rates of VTE according to this coronavirus risk model, um, the y-axis here shows the rate of VTE, and the x-axis shows the, uh, the risk categorization. As you can see, patients with low risk category have less than 1% risk of developing venous thromboembolism, whereas the high risk have almost 7% risk of developing venous thromboembolism. So this shows that not every patient with cancer is having the same risk of venous thromboembolism. And um, this Corona's model was further validated uh, in another study, is a CAT study, Vienna CAT study, uh, Cancer and Thrombosis um, Association, in a follow-up of 800 patients. And six-month cumulative risk of VTE, as you can see, in the high risk is around 17%, whereas low risk is 1.5%. Uh, um, so as now we are seeing some patients really have high risk for developing venous thromboembolism. The question is, should we put them on outpatient prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism, especially for patients who is receiving chemotherapy? Um, there are various studies that were um, addressing this same question. Um, but as, as you can see, um, Patients with certain types of cancers, especially pancreas, um, have the most benefit with outpatient prophylaxis, but not everyone has the same benefit. Um, and, but none of these studies showed any survival advantage, and anticoagulation is associated with risk of bleeding, cause and need for injections, especially the low enoughs. Most patients, they don't really like it. And we don't know the optimal dose, duration, and which type of uh, cancer patient should be anticoagulated and what stage needs to be anticoagulated. So we need to better define the risk stratification. Understanding the tumor biology um, is going to help us to identify which patients are at highest risk for developing venous thromboembolism. And targeting these patients for this thromboprophylaxis is going, 
hoping to decrease the risk of VTE and associated morbidity and mortality. Uh, what does ASCO guidelines and NCC guidelines recommend? They do, uh, the routine pharmacological thromboprophylaxis is not recommended in cancer outpatients. But they, but they say you may consider low molecular weight prophylaxis for patients with high-risk category. And they don't mention who are high-risk category, and we need to identify who are those high-risk category patients. Um, but they do mention that multiple myeloma patients receiving lenalidomide, thal thalidomide should receive anticoagulation prophylaxis. So understanding the biology of the tumor and the pathogenesis of VTE in cancer is crucial to identify this high-risk population. We all know our triad of endothelial injury, stasis, and hypercoagulability. But let's look this triad in the context of cancer. Venous stasis, prolonged bed rest, which many of the cancer patients will be doing, venous compression by tumors, lymphadenopathy, venous invasion by the tumor, endothelial injury with direct invasion of the tumor or adhesion by the tumor, surgery, chemo, radiation, catheter, these are all the risk factors. Then hypercoagulability, the tumor-associated procoagulants, inflammatory cytokines, which we'll be talking in our next slide. Um, the enhanced interactions between the tumor cells, endothelial cells, platelets, monocytes, macrophages. These all lead to hypercoagulability that we see in patients with cancer. Um, this is a busy slide. Um, so basically what this slide is showing is uh, that you have TF is tissue factor, CP is cancer procoagulant, and you know VEGF, TNF, interleukin alpha, beta, PA, plasminogen activator inhibitor. I'm not sure if I have a pointer here. Um, so what this picture is showing is basically the tumor cells have increased expression of TF, which is tissue factor, and CP, which is cancer procoagulant. And this increased expression of TF and CP is further uh, enhanced by uh, the production of interleukin-8, by the endothelial cells, VEGF by the tumor cells, TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, beta by the um, tumor cells. And this further uh, convert the normally anticoagulant endothelial cells into procoagulant endothelium. And this does by various mechanisms. One is by down-regulating the thrombomodulin, whose normal function is to inhibit coagulation, and by further upregulating tissue factor and plasminogen activator inhibitor, and further increasing the production of interleukin-8. All these mechanisms lead to one common pathway of increased, th like increased thrombin generation. And this leads to increased production of fibrin, which again um, uh, leads to increased production of interleukins and all these cytokines, inflammatory cytokines. The end product of this busy slide is increased thrombin generation. So, so now we know that um, the underlying pathogenesis for patients with malignancy and VTE is thrombin generation. Can we study thrombin generation and identify patients with increased risk for VTE? Um, and is it a predictive model to, to identify patients with increased risk of venous thromboembolism? This study addressed that same question. This study uh, enrolled over 1,000 patients. Um, as you can see, the x-axis uh, shows the number of days that they followed these patients, and the y-axis shows probability of developing venous thromboembolism. And patients with uh, thrombin generation over 75th percentile have 11% higher probability of developing venous thromboembolism compared to patients with lower peak thrombin generation. And the p-value, as you can see, is 0.002, quite significant. 
And in this big study of 1,000 patients, 13% of the patients were brain tumor patients. And in this study, they identified patients, uh, different types of biologies um, with different risk factors for VTE. And brain tumor was the one with highest percentage of VTE at six-month period and two-year period. So that made us uh, interested in studying thrombin generation in patients with brain tumors. Um, in the study, even uh, brain tumor was associated with higher risk of VTE compared to pancreas cancer. So um, we, uh, we did the study D12096 coagulation activation in brain neoplasm. But why do we have to do this study? Is there any other study done before? There is one study that was done uh, evaluating thrombin generation in 47 patients with glioblastoma multiforme. They identified that 20% uh, increase in the risk of pre-op uh, thrombin generation in GBM patients compared to the control. But this study has um, several drawbacks. They did not um, study the treatment effect of thrombin generation, like what happens to thrombin generation after the tumor is removed, what happens to the thrombin generation when the tumor is progressing, those factors. And the confounding aspect of this study is they measured thrombin generation in whole blood, not on the plasma. And they did not um, um, validate, um, their, um, they did not take into the account of the inter subject variability of red blood cell count, platelet, when they did the final analysis. So there are small pitfalls in this study. So we did the study D12096 coagulation activation in brain neoplasms. This was supported by the generous, uh, generous grant support from Northern New England Clinical Oncology Society, Neuro-Oncology Department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. The primary objective of this study is to compare pre-surgical pre-thrombin generation in glioblastoma multiforme cohort and healthy with matched age and gender matched healthy controls. Our secondary objectives were comparing the pre-surgical peak thrombin generation in the meningioma cohort with age and gender matched healthy controls and determining the immediate effect of tumor resection on plasma thrombin generation in patients with the glioblastoma multiforme and quantitating tissue factor and tissue factor pathway inhibitor expression in resected glioblastoma multiforme and meningioma specimens, and comparing the tumor volume on MRIs with plasma thrombin generation and biomarkers in patients with GBM and meningioma. So um, our exclusion criteria is any patient with active malignancy other than meningioma and glioblastoma within the past five years of study entry, history of prior um, uh, VTE in the past five years, or any time history of idiopathic venous thromboembolism, current treatment with any anticoagulation within the past 90 days of enrollment, and surgical procedures other than skin biopsy within 30 days before enrollment. So methods. So we plan to enroll 30 patients with the glioblastoma multiforme, 30 patients with meningioma. Um, so uh, we identified the potential subjects with uh, possible uh, meningioma and glioblastoma multiforme through two mechanisms. One is by looking into the neuro-onc console list every day in the EDH. And the second one is through emails from the neurosurgery um, uh, recruiter or neurosurgery um, scheduling nurse. Um, those were the, not the perfect methods to enroll the patients because um, we keep looking for the neuron consoles every day, but you will have the patients showing up on the list uh, two days after they undergo the surgery. But we need the patient ideally before the surgery for the blood sample. Um, and um, 
So once we identify the patient, we consent them uh, for blood collection. Our goal is uh, to collect um, uh, one specimen before pre-op, before they go to the surgery, and the second specimen at three to six weeks post-op when they come for follow-up um, appointments. Uh, we were collecting 20 ml of blood in 3.2% cit sodium citrate tubes. Um, and once we collect this, all these uh, blood samples, we were sending them to our special coag lab of Dr. Onstein, where um, they sent to use these samples to um, get platelet-poor plasma, and then they cryopreserve them in Dr. Onstein's lab at minus 80 degrees centigrade until we analyze them. Uh, Thrombin generation was measured using the calibrated automated thrombin, uh, thrombogram assay. So coming to the enrollment, which I already highlighted a little bit, or all the troubles we had in uh, getting the patients enrolled in the study. So uh, our target was to enroll 30 patients with meningium or 30 with GBM, and let's see what we got here. Um, we uh, consent total of 58 patients, and of them, 15 were screen failures, um, the reason with patient ended up having metastatic cancer or low-grade glioma, gliosarcoma, B-cell lymphomas, and various other types of cancers. Um, and we were ultimately able to enroll 20 patients with the glioblastoma multiforme and 23 patients with meningioma. As you can see, the average age of uh, glioblastoma patients is 64, ranging from 37 to 83. And the meningioma patients average is 57, ranging from 35 to 75. Then we, um, we got blood samples from matched uh, age and gender-matched healthy controls from the blood donor room. Um, so our goal was also to get post-op samples at three to six-week uh, period. Um, most of these post-op samples for meningioma patients uh, we could not get because they get the surgery and they never come for follow-up again. Uh, they are just discharged and they follow up with their PCP locally. They never have any follow-up appointment. So we missed most of the G uh, meningioma follow-up blood samples. For GBM, we were only able to op obtain nine post-op samples. The various reasons are patient went on hospice, patient did not even go through surgery. Um, we need post-op samples. If they don't go for surgery, we could not get the post-op sample. Our patient transferred their care to some other um, hospital. So we missed a lot of post-op samples. So um, this is thrombin generation, um, which we are using as a common marker for coagulation. Uh, we are using this as a marker for coagulation in our study. As you can see, um, um, the y-axis shows the thrombin generation, the lag time, the time to start the curve, the time to peak, the peak time, and the tail. The thrombin generation, um, we commonly use PT and PTT for our uh, um, coagulation tests, but PT and PTT are not the best tests for studying in patients with, uh, in, in clinical trials. The reason because PTPT uh, measure only this lag time, and their end point is production of fibrin, which happens once there is 5% of thrombin generated. So they are not, um, PTPT does not reflect the entire curve of this thrombin generation. It only uh, reflects the lag time. So for uh, studying the, uh, the risk of venous thromboembolism and underlying biology, PTPT are not the best test. So thrombin generation is, is a better test to. Um, and peak thrombin generation, as you can see, uh, in patients with pre-op glioblastoma under controls, 
mean is 219 patients with pre-op and uh, in the controls it is 186. P-value is quite significant. Uh, it's so significant that I had to measure multiple times to see is, is it really true and I asked Dr. Ronstein, can it be really true Dr. Ronstein, it's so high. Um, <laughs> so pre-op meningioma versus controls, and you can see mean is 242 in pre-op meningioma, control 177, p-value again significant. Uh, pre-op GBM and pre-op meningioma, and again, it's quite significant. So, and follow-up of um, our patients, one patient with meningioma developed venous thromboembolism, and two patients with glioblastoma developed venous thromboembolism during our follow-up period. Six of uh, 20 patients with G GBM are still alive at the time of the final analysis. Median survival is um, around 9.7 months. Uh, this is the bar graph showing uh, peak thrombin generation in uh, pre-op patients versus post-op patients, and the p-value is quite significant, 0.024. And um, this is um, the histochemistry of tissue factor and tissue factor pathway inhibitor. As you can see, this slide, you can see a lot of angiogenesis with blood vessels on this tissue slide. And tissue factor is highly expressed in the blood vessels, and you can see the lack of expression of tissue factor pathway inhibitor, which we, which we expected. And um, so our, another two conclusions, um, measuring the tumor volumes, it's still under, under progression, it's still on, in the working progress. Um, conclusions of our study. GBM patients have higher thrombin generation compared to both controls and meningioma patients. Meningioma patients have higher thrombin generation compared to the controls. Thrombin generation decreased significantly with resection of the tumor in GBM patients. So future directions. So our study is good, but the limitation of our study is it's a small studies population, 20 patients with GBM and 23 patients with meningioma. So we need much larger studies to further um, identify the uh, tissue tumor types and the underlying biology and what type of tumors, uh, what type of patients with what type of cancers uh, benefit from prophylactic anticoagulation and the patient population who will benefit most. So we need more studies. And also the role of direct oral anticoagulation in patients with cancers. That will eliminate the risk of having all these injections, potentially. So Dr. Monique, I'm not sure if she's here, she's currently doing two studies, thrombin generation protocol for stage four adenocarcinoma of the lung and pancreas. She's enrolling patients right now. And she's op opening soon another study uh, evaluating the efficacy and safety of rivaroxaban prophylaxis compared to placebo in ambulatory cancer patients. Um, so she's going to open the study pretty soon. Okay. And my special thanks to Dr. Ronstein, Dr. Fadol, Dr. Brett Gurley, um, Dr. Heather Wisher, James Ford, he's here, um, Dr. John McDowell, uh, Rodwell, Monique, Bridget, Erin, and my special thanks to everyone. Questions, comments, and they told me to give the activity, uh, activity code at the end of my presentation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hmm? So Rupa, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. When you prepped your samples, 
How did you prepare the plasma? Was that what G force? What G force? Uh, centrifugation force? Yeah, was it all for centrifuge? No, it's, I think it's a 400. Clinical uh, lab conditions. Clinical lab, okay. Okay. Hmm? All right. So, do you think that there may be a contribution from uh, microparticles that, that uh, you may be observing in your outcome? Yeah, this is actually one of the path uh, underlying uh, hypotheses that increased expression of microparticles, circulating microparticles, leads to increased uh, thrombin generation. But we didn't, uh, we didn't specifically look into that uh, in our study. Did you, in your um, following of the glioblastoma patients, were there any who didn't drop their thrombin generation, and was that predictive at all of their prognosis? Table, uh, which I don't have on my slides, but all the patients who underwent resection had a decrease in the thrombin generation. Um, but we didn't look into individual patient. How significant is that? We also were um, other um, one of our end secondary objective was to collect further samples at three months interval, six month interval after surgery, and we missed most of those samples, so we didn't even analyze them. Our uh, one of our end point was to see if the thrombin generation again increases when the tumor is progressing. Um, unfortunately, we could not look into that, and one of the future directions is looking into that aspect also. Hmm. So it's quite curious that you mentioned that the risk of thrombosis is very high at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this, I'm assuming, is when we clinically diagnose malignancy. Yes. Which has probably been there for several months, maybe years prior mm -hmm. to our diagnosis. Yes. Mm -hmm. Educate me. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you, you answered already this, that question. You mentioned patient has this cancer undiagnosed for a long time. So why are they now diagnosing? Because the tumor is progressing, they are symptomatic. So as the tumor progresses, you have increased production of um, all these procoagulants and cancer procoagulants and tissue factors, increased thrombin generation. So as the tumor is progressing, one of our risk factors is advanced stage. Advanced stage of the tumor leads to increased thrombin generation, increased risk for VTE. And also, if they, are, if they are having follicular lymphoma sitting in their body for several years, it's quite indolent. They are not going to produce much tissue factor. They're not going to have VTE. Um, Rupa, going forward, in, mm -hmm. as you get to the uh, oral anticoagulants, thrombin mm -hmm. inhibitors, mm -hmm. how big a study is it going to take to determine whether those are benefit or not? Um, sorry, can you repeat the uh, last question, uh, last sentence? How big a study would you need? How big of a study? How big of a study? I don't know the answer to that question, how big of a study. Um, <laughs> I'm not a statistician. <laughs> I did a study that we're going to open to look for the role of anticoagulation for prevention in ambulatory cancer patients will be about 700 patients in order to probably see an efficacy of the drug. So it will be a large trial. Is it a global study? Yes, multi-center. And from what I've heard, it's like 70 center. That have to participate. It's not easy to do a prevention trial. It's 700 
high BTE risk and low BTE risk cancers, so mm -hmm. pancreas versus breast, for example. Mm -hmm. um, is it known what sort of what differentiates why those are high versus low risk, like in terms of the uh, procoagulant type factors or, or the, the mm -hmm. environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. That's exactly what we are trying to study: which patients, which type of tumors have higher risk of uh, venous thromboembolism, and which have lower risk of venous thromboembolism. And thrombin generation, we are using thrombin generation to identify patients uh, um, who have higher risk versus the lower risk. If you go back to my study. Um, this study, in this study, they enrolled 19 different types of malignancies, and they, gen they assessed peak thrombin generation in each type of malignancies. I don't have a graph uh, of each type of cancers and their respective thrombin generation, but in this study, the highest number of, uh, the highest peak uh, thrombin generation was noted in patients with brain tumors, followed by pancreas, followed by lung lymphomas and non-Hodgkin lymphomas and myelomas and colorectal cancers. And low thrombin generation was seen uh, in breast and other cancers. So, simply because they tend to be more advanced stage of the time, time diagnosis? They did not really address that question in this study. Like, uh, they did not mention how much, how much percentage of each subgroup of cancers are metastatic versus local. Uh, but this whole study included around two-thirds of patients were, uh, were advanced in this study. No, yeah, two-thirds were early stage and one-third were metastatic. They did not address into each subcategory. Just want to uh, make one announcement, a reminder that there's a C. Everett Koop uh, distinguished lecturer presenting this afternoon, Auditorium G at 4 p.m. John Pierce is visiting from UC San Diego and discussing the progress toward um, a smoke-free society. So just a reminder, and there will be refreshments.